Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, it is always great to gather in Sunday mornings here at Community and our campus. We gather as, as what we call the church, but more and more I keep recognizing uh, that God is pulling people from a lot of different backgrounds. And I, I more view now what our Sunday mornings look like is kind of like the multitudes on the mountainside trying to hear the teachings of Jesus. And with that, that means many of you are here and probably you're not sure what's going to happen and why am I here and maybe someone muscled you to get here. So we're at very degrees. Some I've been here for years. Uh, so just a few things as far as our service. I just want you to know we do singing, which really has been traditional for thousands of years around the anthems. We see that in scripture. Uh, we'll have some teaching, but then we're going to have communion after the teaching. It's important for you to know that we do that every week, as Jesus commanded, do this often in remembrance of me. We are here to remember what God did for us by sending his son, Jesus. And that's why we go to communion. And so today, I'm, I'm excited, we'll, we'll share about the teaching, but we also take offering. Uh, I've often said, uh, I've had people say, I don't go to church because they always ask for money. Um, we're not asking for your money. Um, as the ushers come forward, that sounds awkward, as now I'm saying ushers come forward because we're going to take your money. Uh, it's an expression of worship. And Jesus' teachings are really brilliant because they, they're really not about you becoming more moral. It's saying, I know how I design you and that nothing is to replace worshiping me first. Our expression of giving is an expression of, of who's in charge and who's given us what we have. So if you're new, don't feel obligated. We just, a lot of us, for us, this is a blessing to be able to give back to God. And as a church, we steward that. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue. Father, thank you for the chance to give, uh, to be generous. That's what it's about. God, that you are a generous God, and that you sent your son. And God, we had a chance on this earth to be generous back. Not just to our church body, Father, but to others, and to reflect our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just a few things going on in our church. We uh, like to change things up, if you haven't noticed. We always are trying to change things up uh, to, to wake us up in some ways, but we're also trying to get you out of your chair. Uh, we do that with our Go department, and that is really a lot of the uh, work we put around vetting ministries and opportunities to get you to go serve. Not because we want you to store up some credits in heaven, but because Jesus said that our hearts would be transformed to be serving other people. A couple ones I want to, just to call out for your attention. Feed my starving children. Who's packed a meal in the last two years at our two packings? Yeah. So many of you know what that is. If some of you haven't done that, ask a person that raised their hand. We in this room packed a half a million meals last year for kids around the world that are eating. And so the way we raise funds is we don't take offerings for that. We put that back in the hands of families, collecting quarters, and then you would then turn those into uh, the Feed My Starving Children booth, or I guess it's the M&M man down the, down the hallway here, right? And so that's closer to the village, and so the village gets a little bit closer to the M&M man. But we do that. We also do a movie night. Our movie night is where families are kind of filling in this space with blankets and chairs, and it's a great movie, but we're not really just doing entertainment, all the proceeds go to Feed My Starving Children. Again, it's some creative ways to do that. And if you've been here for a movie night, crazy, crazy, crazy world. Uh, 
student impact communities. We are also, we've ramped up for the last few years a program to get around our public schools and just to be a person to help encourage and coach kids to read. And so many of you have done that. If you're interested in that, the Go area, there's a Go banner in the kiosk both at the Village and both here in our lobby that you can uh, go and try to sign up and be a part of this Student Impact community. It's another great opportunity for you, all right? Um, Global Leadership Summit, on your chairs. Anybody get those cards under your chairs? Last couple years we've been doing this and uh, it's very exciting. Willow Creek Community Church, uh, we, we have loved being a part of this Global Leadership Summit. Now, if, how many people have watched sessions from the Global Leadership Summit? Raise your hand. A few of you have. I will say you will, not, you will hear the gospel preached, but you will also hear people who don't know God talk about leadership and be impacted very deeply. It is probably one of the better conferences in the world. About a quarter million people will see it, and it's a great opportunity for you to go. Now, it's normally about 207, 209. We, because we're a host church, it's $89 for a day and a half. We have it in this room, simulcasted, very powerful. If you want to be a part of that, uh, we're actually taking our first 100 signups and giving away the book Crucial Conversations, uh, a great tool. We went through that last year. I would encourage that. The book will be available next week, but go sign up. On the back of your card, there's a code that you can get, and we would just encourage you to do that. Ripple is something that we've been doing here also, and that is for our church, our church, some of our, our building retooling, but we really want to make disciples around here. Uh, we are underspaced right now for our children's. It's one of our first phase projects to redo our children's, and we want to grow that up. We want to grow up our kids. We want to disciple our children. And so if you want to know more about Ripple, next week at this service time, I will be in the Arts Center doing a Ripple presentation if you don't know anything about that. So we'd invite you to go to the Ripple uh, you know, kiosk, uh, whether it's at the Village uh, or here in our lobby, and you could go see that, all right? Well, this morning I get the distinct privilege to introduce to you someone who we've already had here at, at Community Church. Yesterday we had 250, over 250 people that came and heard about apologetics. Now that doesn't mean training you on how to apologize for your faith, right? Because that's the way we think about it. Apologetics is, why do you believe what you believe, and could you actually talk about it? I mean, it's an interesting question, because I find, especially here in Green Bay, a lot of people are religious, and some of you are in this room, and we're welcoming you here, but you could not articulate why you believe. Uh, Jim is someone who was given, uh, I was made aware of about a year ago, and I have not only had, we had him here last year, talking about apologetics, about how to defend the faith, the historical evidence, some of the philosophical conversation around that. Very, very empowering for our church. I've had him for the, the team uh, and doing a couple chapels and wanting him to be exposing our team around that. But as a pastor, one of the roles I have to continually play, and it's, it's one that I hold very dear, but it's, it's one that bears a lot of load on my shoulders, is that Whatever is going to come up here on this stage to teach, I want it to be moving us and stretching us. And when Jim and I have talked, we said, I, I said, we need, to, we need some sober talking. We, we need a sober talk that's going to wake us up, not only as adults, but about kids and our kids' generation. Uh, 
Jim is traveling all over the country and sometimes around the world around this idea of our faith and defending it. Now, Jim's background, he'll let you know. He was an atheist once. Um, his family's Mormon. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but you find someone that is sat in a lot of shoes that many of us have kind of come from. And I would just uh, love for us to embrace. He's got a lot of energy this morning. Um, he's, he's from California, so there's like dear to my heart, right? There's actually some, some good people that come to California, just a few of us. Uh, but Jim is excited about this morning. You gave a great community welcome to Jay Warner Wallace. What I love about um, Troy is he's a big kid. But for those of you who aren't kids, you may wonder what we're going to do with the kids. So now is the time for our kids to leave and go to children's ministry. So if you've got somebody who's ready, have them all get up, give them a high five on the way out the door. They're going to go to uh, their groups. They're going to be dismissed right now. Awesome, awesome. Because we're actually going to talk about this most important generation. And you might be in the room thinking to yourself, well, I don't have anyone in this generation. I mean, these are, these are young kids, and I don't have young kids yet. Or it's been a lot of years since I had young kids. But it turns out to me the most important group in the church is if you're under 30, I think you're probably the most important group in the church. I hate to say it, us, those of us who aren't under 30, maybe I'm kind of giving you, you know, short shrift, but I, I think, honestly, this is the group we, should, we really need to prepare because they are being challenged in a way that we are not being challenged. So let me start by introducing you to who I am. Uh, my name is Jim Wallace. I was here last year with you guys. I have a weird background. Yeah, I was uh, raised in Southern California. Um, I was not raised by Christians. My parents are not, were not Christians when I was growing up. Uh, my dad is a really committed atheist even now. I was an atheist until I was 35. I was a very dogmatic, I think well-informed atheist. I was well-read. And I was just out. I thought you guys were all crazy. And uh, over the years, uh, doing different jobs in law enforcement, I eventually became a Christian because I was interested in what Jesus had to say. That was it. Not as God, just as a wise, ancient sage. But that caused me to have to evaluate the Gospels as history, as reliable or unreliable eyewitness accounts. And in process of doing that, I became a Christian. But I've also been really determined to help those of us who take our faith for granted to think more evidentially about our faith. And a lot of that comes just out of my background as a detective. Because I'll tell you that most of the cases I work are very complex puzzles. They're cold case murders. They're murders that went unsolved for 30 years. And as they went unsolved, somebody had to come along and try to put together the stuff that was kind of hiding in plain sight to try to make a case. And we've been doing that now for a number of years. We've been uh, fortunate enough to be uh, kind of on television, on Dateline. You may have seen a bunch of our cases. We've been on Dateline more than any other uh, set of detectives uh, in the country. And during that process, we've learned a few things that I think can help you guys today. But really this morning, what I'm going to speak to you, and I usually come here, and I've come here in the past, and I was here yesterday for three sessions talking about the evidence for God's existence, the evidence for the reliability of Scripture, the evidence for the resurrection, why we should believe in objective versus subjective truth claims. We did all that yesterday. If you weren't here, you're probably glad because that's a lot of stuff. But this morning, what I want to do is, in some ways, it is going to be sobering because I'm going to share with you the stuff I learned, a lot of what I learned working gangs in South Central Los Angeles County. 
And then uh, what I've also learned as a detective and as a father who's raised four kids of his own. I have, I, my dad remarried when I was very young and he has a second wife who is LDS, she's Mormon. So I have six brothers and sisters who are all raised LDS. And so I spend a lot of time uh, talking to my family and I'm very interested in Mormonism because it was one of the very first worldviews I examined on the way to Christianity. Now, I, you learn things working in this job, and my son now actually does the same job that I did for years, so he's using the same tools that I use, I use the same tools that my dad used, so for 54 years in our agency, there's been somebody named Jim Wallace to answer the phone, and, and so I've taken a lot of what we've learned, both working in law enforcement and working as a youth pastor and as a lead pastor, and I've tried to pour it into a website called coldcasechristianity.com. And that's a place where I hope you'll go to get resources because I'm gonna challenge you today and I'm gonna leave you hanging. When this is all done, you're gonna feel like, okay, I get it, I see the problem, I know I need to be able to fix the problem, but what do I do? How do I begin? Well, it turns out you're in the right place because you're in a church that's willing to train you. You're in a church that's willing to do what it'll take because I'm gonna tell you, to put on a conference yesterday for what, four hours, we sat and studied this information, that is so rare. Nobody does that, but these guys do it. The fact that you would even ask me back, I think it's crazy, personally, but here I am. <laughs> now, I have a, 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 a cell phone app, a, a smartphone app, that will help you also make a case for what you believe. And everything that's on our website is featured on this app, including all the videos of all the talks we do, so even this talk will be on this phone app. You can look at it later. And if you wanted to kind of complain about anything you hear today, you can do it on live right now on Twitter, okay? <laughs> so that being said, let's jump in to why I, I kind of a, um, hope a sobering message that I'm about to deliver to you this morning to wake you up. I told these guys yesterday, I want to be able to shake the cage a little bit. And I want to ask you, do you even know what is waiting for our young people when they step out into the university setting. And before I even say this, let me just tell you right now, I'm gonna give you some sobering statistics about universities and what happens to young Christians at university, but that does not mean that I hate universities. Because of course I don't. I have a bachelor's degree at Cal State Long Beach in design and a master's degree from UCLA in architecture. I'm not an architect though. <laughs> I call it architecture. And, but I mean, I understand what it is to be in the university setting, and I was in that setting all during the 80s, and I was very much an atheist and enjoying my grad school experience, trust me. And so I, I am a, f a fan of public schools. I was public school trained. My kids all went to public schools except for one. So I'm not here to bash on public schools at all. I just want us to be aware of what is happening to our young people when they go to the university. Because we used to think of our country as a Christian nation. As a, and it really was for many, many generations. But do you really think it is now? I think the numbers would suggest that we still outnumber other groups in the United States. But if you look at the number trend, it's not good for us. And even as uh, Christianity is growing in other parts of the world, it's not growing in, in the United States, it's shrinking in the United States. And not only that, when you poll people and ask them where they place the importance of Christianity in their own personal lives, it's incredibly low. And how they do that is they simply say, hey, list for me what's the most important thing about your life. Family is almost always going to be first. And Christianity ends up somewhere down toward the bottom of many lists, even for those who claim to be Christians. 
So not only do we have a, gr- a shrinking presence in the country, we're having even more incre- decreasing influence in the country because it's, when I first became a Christian, I read this book by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. And in God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis says, if this is not true, it's of no importance. If Jesus is not who he said he was, this is of no importance. If it is true, however, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so I knew right away, if this was true, I gotta be all in. It can't end up on my 12% mark. It has to be 100%. But is that really how we look at it? Not really. And if you look at the groups that are challenged, do you think it's folks who are in the baby boomer generation or that are, being, are leaving the church? Do you think this is the group that's being challenged? No. Do you think it's the group of parents in their 40s? No. The people who are leaving the church are young people in huge numbers. It's been described as an atheist tsunami by many pollsters. We better get, wake up and see this is happening. And there's uh, documentation for it is dramatic. You'll see over and over again the statistics for young people leaving Christianity in their college years is ridiculous regardless of who does the survey. If it's Assemblies of God, if it's the Baptist churches, if it's the Methodist churches, if it's Lutheran, I don't care who's doing it. If it's secular pollsters or Christian pollsters, the numbers are not good. Anywhere between 60 80% of young people will leave by their senior year of college. Are you good with that? Now, you might say, well, is that really true? Okay, let's cut it in half. Let's say that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong. Let's say it's wrong. Let's say it's only 30 or 40%. Would you be good with that? I wouldn't be good with that either. But it's actually much higher. And not only that, I think Ken Ham does a good job in this book, Already Gone, of really pulling out, when does this begin? Do you really think it's when students finally get to college that that's when that clicks for them and they're out? Not really. It's already happening in junior high and high school. They're already starting to have the significant doubts that no one's addressing. You may start to hear it just gently. You might just start to hear the, the hesitation about wanting to come to church, but we don't address it. We let it go. By the time we let them go to college, now they're not being supervised. They would go to church with you, but once you're not around, they're not going to church. And I think he's right. That is what's happening. And it starts very early, Right? And only a third of those who leave the church ever come back. So you might say, well, look, if everyone leaves in their college years, I even had struggles with my call, but I came back. Well, you're amongst only a third that actually do that. So there's a pretty high attrition rate. And this is why we see the percentages decreasing over the years of who would call themselves Christians. Now, I'm not comfortable with it. And I first realized it as a youth pastor. I was working in a church that was a sister church to one that Troy was working at in California, or I came from. And I remember that first year I graduated seniors, uh, within just the time it took to get them to Christmas break, all but one were no longer calling themselves Christians. And I thought, really? I stink as a youth pastor. I'm terrible. And I told my staff, whatever we're doing, we're not doing it anymore because it's not helping our students. We're not preparing our students for the next generation of being a Christian. We gotta do something. Of course, we know that it doesn't all come down to your youth pastor. If you think the church can solve this without parents, you're crazy. We have as parents to step up and take on the challenge, right? 
because it starts really early with a media exposure that a culture is decreasingly Christian and our values are under attack constantly. They may not come right out and say they don't like Christians, but they don't seem to like Christian values. And by the way, any attack on your Christian values is an attack on your Christ. And so it starts really early, and then it continues through uh, grade school. And although my kids were all in public school, I'm not here to tell you we can do much to change that, perhaps, but I know what I, I can do. I can prepare my kids to, to face the challenge, to, to recognize the lie when it comes, right? But by the time students get to the academy, by the time students get to the university, uh, it's, it's, it's tough. Because the worldview represented at the university is not a Christian worldview. Usually, even sometimes in Christian universities. I'm a professor at Biola, which is a university in La Mirada, California. And I've loved it. I'm teaching in the master's department at, of apologetics. And I think it's a great place to go. But I've talked to students, and I've seen stories of really hardcore atheists in our culture who began their education at places like Moody and Wheaton in places you might think should be friendly to the Christian worldview. And they end up coming out of Christianity in places like that. Because what's happening in the Christian in, in the university is there's a certain attitude, like it's expressed here by Daniel Dennett, who's at Tufts University, teaches philosophy, and he says, they will see me as just another liberal professor trying to cajole them out of some of their convictions. And they're dead right about that. That's exactly what I am. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. And where does he get this from? Because there's tons of secular predecessor who have spoken to this, like Richard Rorty, who says something even more dramatic. We try to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. So we're gonna go right on trying to discredit you in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. And I think that's exactly what is happening in many places around the country. Because the percentage, the, the, God bless you, the people who are, who are really in charge of schools, who are teaching schools, are far less uh, um, appreciative, or far, far less supportive of Christian worldview than most of the general culture. It just happens to be the case. Here, this is an old prophetic statement from the 1930s from the father of humanism, Charles Francis Potter. And here's what he wrote years ago. And I think it's very, very dramatic. He says, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? That's true, right? I mean, it's just time in front of whoever it is you're in front of. The more time you're in front of something, the more likely you are to mirror the thing you're in front of, right? I mean, it's not like, this is not rocket science. So you know, I wanna ask you this morning, do you think that you're ready or your students are ready to make the case for what they believe. I, I, I remember years ago I was at a book signing and I had my books there and a lady came up after a talk and she said, I wanna buy a book for my 26 year old daughter because she was a Christian and she's no longer a Christian. I said, okay, I can sign a book to her but I'll be honest with you, she's not gonna read it. But I bet you she came to you years ago, didn't she, with her first question. She said, yeah. I said, I want you to take this book home and I want you to read it. 
because she's not gonna read the book, but she might have a conversation with you over Thanksgiving, a conversation with you over the next break, where she can actually get in dialogue because it turns out our students want us to be the first answerer of their doubts. They don't want my book. They don't want anyone's book. They want to know if you know. Why, mom and dad, are you Christians? That's what we have to be prepared for. It really does come back to us, folks. We have to know why this is true. It turns out that in the end, most people I ask, why are you a Christian? will very seldom ever have said to me, well, I investigated the historicity of the New Testament, and I investigated the evidence for the resurrection, and I investigated the evidence for God's existence, and as a result of that investigation, I am now a Christian. <laughs> right? Instead, they're gonna say, I was raised in the church, or I had some experience that for me confirmed that God is true, or I, I had a changed life, which is evidence, this is all great, but every religious group says that Everyone does. We happen to be the one religious worldview that could be examined evidentially. And when it is examined evidentially, it passes the test. You can't do this with Buddhism. If I told you yesterday, somebody came to my house, I mean, I just said, okay, yesterday I had a vision from God. And God told me these three things. And I tell you what God told me. How would you ever investigate if any of that is true? A vision from God is cannot be investigated. But if I told you instead, yesterday, God came to me in the form of a human, came in my backyard, rearranged my furniture, sat down, had a barbecue with me, helped me dig a trench, and like that, he built a tree house in my tree. And three people saw it. Could you investigate that? Yes, because that's an event that's rooted in an historical account. It's rooted in an historical event that you could investigate. That, folks, is Christianity. You can't examine Buddhism this way, Hinduism this way. And if you apply this test to other theistic worldviews, I'm just gonna throw it out there, like Mormonism, like Islam, you will compare how they turn out. Christianity is unique in the sense that it can be investigated forensically, and if you do it, it passes the test. Shouldn't we live differently as Christians if that is the case? Shouldn't we be the one evidential theistic worldview? Shouldn't we be the one set of believers who takes an evidential approach to our faith? Shouldn't that demark us from every other kind of theism in the world? Why doesn't it? Are you ready? I'm gonna play a short video here and imagine if this was, we always hope that if our kids are challenged in school, it might look something like this. Nun werde ich euch beweisen, dass Gott, wenn es ihn gibt, böse ist. Hat Gott alles, was existiert, erschaffen? Wenn Gott alles erschaffen hat, dann hat er auch das Böse geschaffen. Das bedeutet, Gott ist böse. Herr Professor, existiert Kälte? Was für eine Frage soll das sein? Natürlich existiert die Kälte. War euch noch nie kalt? Nein, in der Tat, Herr Professor, die Kälte existiert nicht. Nach den Gesetzen der Physik ist das, was wir als kalt empfinden, nur das Fehlen von Wärme. Und existiert Dunkelheit, Herr Professor? Selbstverständlich existiert sie. Nein, sie ist nur das Fehlen von Licht. Wir können das Licht messen, aber die Dunkelheit nicht. Das Böse existiert nicht, genau wie die Kälte und die Dunkelheit. 
Gott hat das Böse nicht geschaffen. Es ist das Ergebnis dessen, was Gottes Hand noch nicht berührt hat. Now, I don't even know if... Yes, yes, yes. Look at you applaud that. Look at you applaud that. Yeah, we just kicked his rear end. We can do it. We just, yeah, we, we're so good. But the reality, of course, is we don't, you know, do you really think that a professor is going to stand there and give this kid all this stage to pontificate, and afterwards the professor is going to go, yeah, he's right. Come on. It's not realistic, right? In the end, it doesn't, look, doesn't play out that way. In the end, it's not, we don't even perform that well. And as a matter of fact, if you're wondering how badly we perform, here's a good book that I'll show you from Christian Smith, who is a sociologist at Notre Dame, who did a survey of young people to see how they treated their faith. What did they think? And he discovered two things. One, he discovered that young people are super articulate about a lot of things. You could ask them what the entire you know, uh, cover liner is on any of the latest releases. They could tell you what, you know, Ed Sheeran's latest albums. You could tell you the entire anthology of Ed Sheeran. But you can't ask them questions about what they believe about God because they are unbelievably inarticulate both theologically, which I won't even talk about yet, I want to just focus on could your kids defend what they believe if they were challenged? I'll play one video for you. It's a video that I think, I want you to ask yourself as you watch it, do you think that your kids would do any better? Better yet, I want you to ask yourself while you're watching it, do you think you'd do any better? Take a look. I do think I have enough faith in God. You would call yourself God, yes. a faithful person. Yes. All right. Well, if God is so good, then why does evil exist? That's a hard question. <laughs> if God is such a good God, why is there so much evil in the world? Um, not very qualified to answer this question. So this great God, um, how can he allow so much evil? That's a great question. <laughs> So a friend in your school sitting at your lunch table says, ah, points out a contradiction in scripture and then throws that in your face, what's your response? Um, you know, it's, it'd be hard to answer that question because a lot of the time you don't, when I come across a contradiction, I don't really know how to respond to that. Give me some evidence for the historical reliability of the Bible. Um. <laughs> I know that's bad. Some real hard, legitimate evidence for believing that this book is historically reliable. Um, and did you grow up in a Christian home? I did. You went to youth group I and did. all that stuff? All right. All, I did all of it. But now you're out of college. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever encounter a situation where your faith was challenged? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, definitely in the classroom. I had professors who, who wanted to ask us the tough questions the, to test if we had our parents' faith or our faith ourselves. And so, what? How did that go for you? I mean, did you did you feel prepared in those moments, or? Um, no. Do you feel prepared to handle? Questions like this only may be more difficult from somebody that legitimately wants to shatter your faith. Honestly, I don't think I could. I wish I could say yes, but I really haven't, at this point in my life, I haven't researched it enough, so I would be so intimidated. Would you guys be intimidated? If, if your kids came home and they asked this question of you, here's what I'm facing in, in college. 
Would you be able to answer their questions about the problem of evil or about what the transmission of, of the scriptures or why this is a reliable document or respond to any objection? There are more, one objection that I hear a lot is that there are more variations between the early manuscripts we have in, in the Bible than there are words in the New Testament. That's a powerful objection. It doesn't matter. I can demonstrate why that has no meaning, no bearing whatsoever on whether the scriptures are reliable or not, or about whether the text we happen to have is a reliable return to the inerrant original. But if you don't know how to answer that question for your kids, they're just left with an open question and no answer. We have to be ready to give answers because most people they discover who leave, leave based on this sad mathematics the sad mathematics of the university. One, our students enter really underprepared. They, don't, they are not prepared adequately to face the challenges they're gonna face. And then when they get there, they meet a hostile university environment. And that's bad enough mathematics right there, right? But the third element that no one wants to talk about is that our kids are like all of us. We're fallen, we wanna chase our passions, we wanna chase our desires. And those kids now, are, our students are out there without any Fences without any boundaries. You're not there to tell them what time to come home, what to do or not do. Now they get to chase their own, their own passions. That's the third element. Look, if you, I say this all the time. I said it yesterday. I'll say it this morning. If you can give me a worldview that accounts for my origins, that explains everything I see in my world, and also allows me to feel good about sleeping with my girlfriend, goodbye Christianity. So give me a naturalistic worldview that answers those questions, and most of my philosophers that I see in these, in these uh, universities can do that. Of course they're gonna leave. What do we expect would happen with this? Did you really think it was gonna be any different? So we have to be ready to help our students, right? Because it turns out when you survey them and ask them, why are you leaving? The vast majority will tell you because they doubt it's true evidentially. They have doubts that sound something like this. Doesn't make any sense to me. It just seems too far-fetched. Or I'm a science person. I need that kind of proof. Too many unanswered questions. And if we don't use this life here in this church and in all of our churches to answer these tough questions, don't be surprised when your students walk away. We have to solve this problem. Now, I'm going to offer you a solution as quickly as I can. And I'm offering it not to Green Bay Community Church as a church, as a building, as an organization. I'm offering it to the church, to all of us as parents, because we've been for too long thinking that our pastor will take care of it. Really? That's a big burden, don't you think? Oh, our youth ministry will take, really? Love the church, but take a role. You are the church. It's our job as parents to raise our kids. Nobody else is gonna do it for us. We can't drag our kid who's starting to have problems with Christianity to our youth pastor and say, hey, can you fix this for me? We do it though, don't we? All the time. I've been that guy that was, had the, the student drugged to me. I can't fix it, but we could if we took a different approach and we do one thing first. First, we have to stop teaching. Stop teaching. It's doing us no good. We've been teaching for generations. You've got great teachers in every church, and it's not changing the direction of the, of the church, is it? Stop teaching. We've got to start training. There's a huge difference between teaching and training. Let me illustrate it for you, okay? Teaching is kinda, can kind of be like when that Charlie Brown cartoon, you know, where the teacher's standing up there just 
wah, 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 right? Because you're just imparting knowledge, right? You, I've got these eight facts. I want to give these eight facts to you. That's important, but that's not training. Training is when you're preparing for the upcoming battle. So athletes train because there's a game coming. Fighters train because there's a fight coming. And if you don't train, you're going to get your, can I say butt in church? You're going to get your butt kicked in the ring. Sorry, kids. Right? That's why you train, because you do not want to take a beating in the, in the battle. So that's the difference between teaching and training. We have a guy in our city named Royce Gracie who won four of the first five ultimate fighting championships. He's a jiu-jitsu ground fighter, okay? He's got a dojo in our city, and a lot of officers go there to train. My son has been there, and he would come home from training, and he would have these big welts on his head, you know, as I would be cut he looked terrible, and it'd take like a week and a half, two weeks to heal. Then he'd go back and come back with the same stupid cut, and I'd be like, why are you doing that? He says, because it took him longer this time to beat me this bad. <laughs> Still gets beat, but it takes a little longer. Every time you go, it takes a little longer. And you know, for an officer, that's important, because everything's gonna go to the ground at some point, it's gonna be a ground fight, and sometimes you just wanna be able to hold on long enough for your backup to get there before he out-wrestles your gun and shoots you in the head. So it's important to be able to hold on, and you learn that by training. You think this guy knows something about training? He does. I wanna teach you the difference between teaching and training with five quick steps. The first one is simply that we've gotta test our students. Everything starts with the test. You probably never, you know, you don't buy a car, a new car unless you know you need a car. You don't usually eat unless you're hungry. How do you know I should even train in this area unless I first show you your need? So if you hire me to come into your youth group, I'm gonna come in and train you the same way we train officers. This is the Crest Bar. It's a bar in our city that's a biker bar. There's a fight here every other night. Bunch of drunk bikers, okay? And when we get there, these training officer is going to bring, by the way, if you get this call, almost always if there's a training car on tonight, we're going to send the training car <laughs> so the trainee can learn how to break up a bar fight. And when the trainee gets there, the FTO is basically going to do this to see if the trainee can do it. Can the trainee pass the test when times get tough? That's what we're looking for. And by the way, if he gets beat badly that night, I guarantee you that rookie is going to go tr start training. He's gonna be in the dojo trying to learn what he did wrong. A failed test can motivate you to train. Make sense? So when I come into a youth group, the first thing I do is I ask the, usually ask the uh, youth pastor to introduce me as an atheist professor at the local university. And I'm gonna spend the first hour with this group just beating them up because I know they're not prepared. And I know within an hour, I could probably deconvert 70% of them. And it's happened where people at the end, when you finally reveal that you're actually the Christian who's there to train them for the next six weeks, they're like, oh, thank God. I was worried. I thought maybe I should just not even be a Christian anymore. Seriously, it happens. We've got these training sessions, by the way, online on YouTube, so you can see what atheist role play looks like. But we do this so we can turn their confidence, their false confidence that they don't even deserve, we can show them how they should really look, which is bad because they are not ready, they're not ready. We test students the way we test officers because we want them to train. Now when we say, hey, how did that feel? Did that feel good? Would you like to be able to do better? 
than you just did? Well, we're gonna train for the next eight weeks. And at the end of that eight weeks, I've got a test coming. That's how we start. We start with a test so we can end with a test. If you told your algebra students that they don't have to take any tests and they're all guaranteed an A, how much time do you think they would study algebra? Seriously, you wouldn't study it at all. Test. Second thing, require more of your students than you think they can handle because they can handle a lot more than you think. They can. And, and, and I, we typically don't, don't push our students like we could push our students. When I was first a youth pastor, I was just concerned about getting students to show up. So I fed them. We played a lot of games. We did a lot of stuff just to get them to show up. I was happy if I got this, okay? But we, at home, of my own kids, they're in AP classes, baccalaureate classes. They're in classes where I'm asking them to really raise the bar, right? To do hard, the same kids that are studying AP physics in school are playing video games and eating pizza at church. Think about that for a second. Really? Now, I understand. They realize that at home, there is a test they're trying to pass, which is a scholarship into school. It's getting accepted to the best school they can get into. There's a goal they're trying to achieve, but there's no goal over here at church. So what's the point? They can do more. These are my, this is my family when I was first a youth pastor, Okay. I was an older, I didn't become a Christian until I was 35, so I was an older youth pastor. And my sons were, um, they're, they're separated by several years from my daughters. Uh, my sons are from Susie and I, but our daughters are adopted out of foster care, so they look, they're just a little bit younger. Uh, me and Annie are about four, six, seven, eight years younger, so Jimmy and David were like in uh, junior high age when I was a youth pastor, so I had high schoolers, and me and Annie were just in elementary school but they would not go into their groups to, uh, for Sunday school. They wanted to come in with mom and dad into the youth room. So I said, fine, come on into the youth room, and they would sit in the laps of all the high schoolers. They went on every missions trip we did with the high schoolers. I took them everywhere with us. They just became part of the high school group. And my high schoolers, I was shooting high. I was teaching them at the college level. So I was asking a lot from the high schoolers to begin with. It turns out these guys caught all of it also. And I was shocked at how much they could. Mia now comes with me and works the book table. She's a little older now. I'll show you what she looks like now. Here she is today. And she comes to me to the book tables, right, when I do these talks, and she always says, I could do your talk word for word. I could actually do it better. It'd be funnier if I told it. That's what she says to me. Well, how did she get that word-for-word word thing? She got it because she caught it. I call it ricochet apologetics. I was aiming at the high schoolers. It bounced off of them and hit my kids. You, you can actually expect more of youngsters. They will raise the bar. Third thing, we gotta give them something. We gotta arm our students with the truth. This is an important, you, you would never think to send officers into the field unarmed. So we take officers and we give them tools, and then we also give them the training so they understand how to use the tools, right? We have to do the same thing with our young people when we send them to college. I call this inoculation theory, right? It's not my name, it's just truth. When you inoculate somebody for the flu, you give them a little dose of the flu. Later on when they're exposed to the big dose of the flu, they're already inoculated. 
So I don't want any of my young people to hear the objections to Christianity for the first time in the university. I want to be the first source of all of those objections. I want them to be exposed to philosophy early. And if you think philosophy is something we Christians should avoid based on passages like this, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. That's not what that verse is saying. It says, according, rather than according to, the, to Christ, the philosophy, the Christian worldview is philosophically sound. You don't have to be afraid of philosophy. Philosophy is our tool, logic is our tool, evidentialism is our tool that just confirms the truth of the Christian worldview. So I wanna teach my students good theology, but I wanna teach them good philosophy so they can think reasonably. And I wanna expose them to ideas as part of that inoculation process. The, whatever text is being used right now that is the fan, the biggest support of atheism, I want that text to be read while they're with me because I will be teaching them where the philosophical problems are with this worldview. So I don't care which atheist text is popular today, that we're gonna look at. I'll be talking and my talks will be based on those texts. Now I'm gonna turn around, of course, and compare that to the Christian worldview, right? But I wanna inoculate them so they hear this first with me. Does that make sense? Then when I turn around, I'm not just gonna give them good theology, good biblical theology. There's a ton of books. Folks, do you even know? Right now, you guys are spending time doing something. You've got some disposable time that you're using. I just bought cable for my house, okay? I've never had cable. Do you know why I bought cable? NFL Network, that's why I bought cable. <laughs> I bought the sports package. I want, we went spent the whole day yesterday, right, afterward, after this thing at Lambeau Field getting a little tour of Lambeau. I'm a complete Green Bay geek, okay? I don't, I'll just tell you. I'm a big time fan right now. And I was raised as a Dallas Cowboy, okay, sorry. My dad is really mad at me right now. So we took all kinds of pictures yesterday of all the wins over the Cowboys, I could text to him. Anyway, um, but there's time, you have time right now. I have disposable time. How are you spending your disposable time? You're reading something, I guarantee you that. You're watching something on TV. You've got a favorite show on cable that you're willing to give an hour a week, an hour a night, two hours a night. Are you willing to give an hour a night to doing the most important thing you could possibly do for your young people? Which is to equip yourself with all the texts that are available out out there that could make you a better Christian case maker. Heck, you get this information for free online. If you don't want to buy anything, just go online and start doing the research. It's out there. You have to decide if you want to do it. The best text, of course, is my text, but I just want to say that. But anyway, <laughs> point is, this is what we should be doing so that in the end, young people won't be able to say this. I was several youth groups in high school, and unfortunately found that youth group was soft. We played a lot of games, had a lot of fun retreats, but barely learned, rarely learned about the fundamentals of faith, why we believe what we believe, and what it is that we do believe. Now that I'm in college, my faith's under constant scrutiny and always being tested by scientific concepts and the secular slant of most universities. I wish I had been equipped with a more solid justification for my faith, knowing how to answer the tough questions, how to respond to arguments, how to stand firm in what feels like a storm against my spirituality. We don't want students to come back afterwards and not be able to take care of business. That's why yesterday we started with truth. Why do we believe there is an objective truth about God to begin with? Why do we believe that God exists? Why do we believe that the Bible is accurate? Why do we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? These are foundational, one step after the other. If you can master these four areas, you are good to go.
but have you mastered those four areas? That's the question. The next thing we do is the most important thing that divides teaching from training, I'll just tell you right now. And that is that we have to get students on the battlefield. This is the thing that changes teaching and turns it into training. This is my department. Do you think if I could handle every phone call, every call of service to my agency, do you think if I could handle it without leaving the room, without leaving the building, I would ever bother to train? If you have no point, if you aren't gonna deploy, you don't need to train. But the same thing is true for us as a church. If you're never gonna step outside your comfort zone and get outside the church walls, there's no point in training. But if you plan on doing that, you better be trained. There's a point at which I can only train you so much on the chalkboard. At some point, you have to get in the ring because you learn one kind of training on the chalkboard, another when it's time to wrestle, right? That's my point. It turns out the one thing that could help me as a youth pastor was not to study more theology. It was to get out my calendar and to simply calendar a battle for my students. Now, I'm raised in a Mormon family, okay? And I have six brothers and sisters who are all Mormons. So I've learned a lot about Mormonism over the years until I spent a lot of time in wards. So for me, the first thing I knew was that the theology of Mormonism is extremely different than the theology of Christianity. Who Jesus is, who God the Father is, what salvation is, who the Holy Spirit is, how, what heaven, nature of heaven, how do we ascend to heaven, what's waiting for us in heaven. All the same words, completely different concepts. If you want your students to understand theology, one way you could do it is to take them to Salt Lake City and have them in dialogue with Mormons because they're gonna have one view, we're gonna have another, you better be equipped to share your view. I take students, I just got back two weeks ago, 38 students we took to Salt Lake City. We'll spend time on the temple ground, we'll spend time training with good teachers, then we'll spend time on the streets of Utah, we'll spend time at the food court in BYU, this is us, speaking with Mormons in the food court. Every kind of horrific, we actually go door to door in the city of Provo, the highest percentage of return Mormon missionaries anywhere on the planet, they're all going to BYU, we go door to door as Christian missionaries. How many knocks do you think it takes before we get into a four hour conversation? Two, maybe two. They're great conversations, loving conversations, but you will be sharpened if you get involved in these kinds of conversations. And at night, our students come back scratching their head, trying to learn more for the next day. When you see that your students on their own, when given an option, are studying their scripture to get ready for the next day, we're in a good place. Do the same thing at Berkeley. Once a year, once every other year, take kids to UC Berkeley where we're going to teach them about atheism and we're going to invite them onto the campus of UC Berkeley where they're going to be in dialogue with atheist groups. Here are three high school seniors speaking with three PhD students in usually ancient languages, history, sciences. Open debate, not a debate, kind of a dialogue in front of 300 other students. Do you think our high schoolers were getting ready for eight weeks for this? Do you think they were paying attention for those eight weeks? Teaching became training because we got a battle coming. Calendars change everything. 
Then we get on the campus. We invite atheists to come into our group and try to explain why our kids are wrong about Christianity. We share. This is Philip Johnson, the father of the ID movement. So we have Christian training also. And then we're on the campus of UC Berkeley sharing our faith on campus. And that night, when the kids get back to the, to the uh, church where we stay in Oakland, what do you think they're doing all night? They're doing this. And this is the whole point of the trip. Because when you start scheduling battles, you will change your teaching into training. One last quick thing here. It's the end. You have to nurture your students. You cannot just throw them out into a battle and then not fix all the bumps and bruises they're going to have. Because trust me, every battle has some element of damage that gets done, right? I mean, every fight... You come out, you don't always look like this. Sometimes you look like this. Hey, sometimes you win the fight and you got a little bit of both. And, and if we're going to put our kids out there, we be, better be really good corner men. We better be good like Stitch Moran, right? This guy like, stitches you up, gets you, ready, gets you ready to go back in the ring, stops the bleeding. Because you got to have a guy like that. Sometimes we're that guy. After one of these sessions in Berkeley, I remember a student who we did not prepare well enough. It was our first trip to Berkeley. She only came to two of the eight trainings. At the end of the first session with an atheist, she came to me and she said, I don't know if there's a God to pray to. Well, you better be ready as that leader to fix that cut, because tomorrow's another battle. She came out of that solid, but boy, it was a rough ride. You gotta nurture. Now, I just wanna leave you with one quick admonition. I know I've raised the flag and I haven't really given you a lot of solutions yet, but let me just tell you, don't think as a parent you couldn't do this because you can. It starts in simple ways. When you watch TV, we have a friend who calls it spot the lie. Whenever they're watching TV, some worldview lie will be told by one of the characters. And my friend will say to his students, to his kids, hey, did you spot the lie? There's a lie that this character is trying to tell us about the nature of the world. Did you spot it? And he deciphers the lie with his students while they're watching TV. There's little ways you can take your students for one-day trips. I used to take my kids for a one-day trip to the local university with a sheet of paper, a questionnaire, a spiritual questionnaire that they would use with kids that they would meet in the quad. Start great conversations. But you gotta be ready for those kinds of trips and we would spend time as a group, as a family, preparing for those trips. We could do this. Because families are at the cornerstone of all of it. We used to have a D.A.R.E. program, and we would teach students how to stay off of drugs and alcohol. For one semester in the fifth grade, officers would go to the school and teach students. We don't do that anymore. You know why? Because we've graduated all the seniors in high school, and there's not a single percentage different in their drug or alcohol use. We're not doing D.A.R.E. anymore. There's no point in it has no impact on our community. When I was working gangs, something similar was happening. I had young kids. And I remember I would go to these big gang meetings with parents, and parents would ask me this question, Jim, what are you guys doing at the police department to keep my kids out of gangs? Why don't we tell them, right? Nothing. That's not my job, to keep your kids out of gangs. I hate to say it. That's your job. My job is to keep your gangster kids from hurting the other kids. Right? I hate to say it, but that's what it is. Because my job is to protect citizens from crime. I can't raise kids. I can barely raise my own. So in the end, if you want to have a huge impact with your own kids, there's a relationship between frequency of training and impact. You can invite me out to your group. I'll speak one time. I'll have a little bit of impact. Or you can invite me out to speak in a series. Like yesterday, we did three talks. I'll have a little bit more impact. Or your pastor, your, your youth pastor, can say, I'm going to start teaching apologetics every week. Okay, great. That'll have more impact. 
But that's not really gonna solve the problem. You, as the parents of this kid, us, as parents, we could model a reasonable evidential faith to our kids, and we'll have astronomical impact because we'll be there every day. The church can't keep, the church, the, this building cannot keep your kids in the faith, but we can as parents. And we are commanded to do this in Scripture. You see it over and over and over again. Train up a child. Train up a child. Train up a child. Train up a child. You see it. We are to train up our kids. A training means you've got to schedule battles. Training means that you have to be ready to nurture with the answers. I said this yesterday. We do not need another million-dollar apologist in Christianity. We need a million one-dollar apologists. We need all of you to get in the game. We're about to celebrate communion right now. And when we do that as believers, what do we say? We, we see this as an act of worship, right? We sing as an act of worship. But what we just did yesterday for three, four hours yesterday, that was a four-hour worship service. And you might think, well, it wasn't a worship service. We, we did a bunch of studying, you know, the evidence for God's existence. We, we studied all this stuff. No, we worshiped God with our mind for four hours yesterday because we're called to worship God with our heart, our soul, our mind. We're called to be thoughtful Christians. Police officers, I said this yesterday, see the whole world in kind of a warped way. We see it as sheep and wolves and sheepdogs who stand in the gap. And we consider ourselves to be sheepdogs. And there are a ton of sheepdog ministries just for police officers, okay? We are sheepdogs. Because the sheep don't even realize they need protecting half the time. If you've ever watched sheep, they don't even like sheepdogs. Sheepdogs have teeth. They're canines also, just like the wolves. They don't want those sheepdogs around. But I'll tell you what, if the yard was full of sheepdogs, there'd be no wolf problem. We need to stop being sheep, folks. All of us need to be a sheepdog. We can be sheepdogs, but you're going to have to work at it. You have to change your priorities. Start reading what matters. Prepare your children. By the way, you are amazed. You have an amazing worship team. Did you know that? I was just standing there going, wow. So awesome. So if you're a believer and you want to celebrate communion with us because you know this is a way of us expressing to God how we feel about what he did for us on that cross and we want to be united to him through the body and blood of Christ, that's what this time is for. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We ask for your encouragement when we get lazy. We ask for your passion when we get apathetic. We want to be different. We want to be on fire for you. Help us to live a new life, a more thoughtful life, a more prepared and engaged life as a celebration of who you are so that you get all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone here says, amen. amen.